Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As you do, join me in prayer. I'm going to base this prayer from Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Lord, your law is perfect. Your word revives our souls. Your testimony, O Lord, is sure, and it makes wise the simple. Your precepts, O Lord, are right. They rejoice our hearts. Your commandment, Lord, is pure. It enlightens our eyes. Lord, the fear of you is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and they are righteous altogether. Lord, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And Lord, by your word, your servants are warned And in keeping them, there is great reward. Lord, help us to find your word to be sure and true and right and just and pure. And help us to be revived and awakened by the glory of your word. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening to you. We pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you'll grab a copy of God's Word and turn with me one final time in this series to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Church family, thank you for your patience and your diligence through this Ecclesiastes series. It has been fascinating to hear the various ways that this series has impacted you and has impacted the life of our church together. I pray it will continue into the future to be a fruitful challenge to mature us and to grow us as we think about life under the sun. Before we conclude this series by looking at the epilogue in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, let me give you just a brief summary of where we're going from here, because people have already been asking me, what are we doing after Ecclesiastes? Well, as we move into the holiday season, we're planning to slow down and go deeper into the theology of the incarnation of our Savior. It really, in the spirit of Ecclesiastes, our goal is going to be over these next couple months to just rejoice hard in the truths of this season of the year. We want to celebrate our Savior's birth in a way that commends joy in all that God has done. And so starting next Sunday, we're planning some standalone sermons that will help us enjoy this season to the max. But then after ramping up the new year, and can you believe that 2023 is as close as it already is, when we we ramp up the new year, the plan, God willing, is to start a verse-by-verse series through the glorious book of Romans, uh, starting in early January. Some have called Romans the greatest letter ever written, and I've been planning, no joke, for the good part of a decade to preach through Romans here at Miller Heights Baptist Church. Should God give me the breath and strength, I intend to throw myself into wholeheartedly declaring the glorious gospel of Jesus from the book of Romans for the next year plus, however long it takes us. And so already be 
preparing, reading, studying the book of Romans as we move into 2023. And let's pray that God would do above and beyond what we could ever even ask him to do as we study and submit to his authoritative word. But this morning, we conclude our study of this clear-eyed, strange but real and hopeful book of Ecclesiastes. The word Ecclesiastes means something like leader of the assembly or leader of the gathering. And that's why we've been calling the author of this book the preacher. And here's how the preacher concludes this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Follow along as I read God's word over us. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of our one shepherd. May he delight our souls with its truth. When we started the book of Ecclesiastes a few months ago, I shared a quote from the great reformer Martin Luther to try and temper our expectations as we embarked upon a study of this book. And so I want to share that quote again here at the end to remind us that we have not yet exhausted this book's meaning. Luther said of the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, this book is one of the more difficult books in all of Scripture, one which no one has ever completely mastered. (laughs) Yes and amen. However... We have seen enough of this book's meaning that hopefully we've been changed along this journey. Hopefully we've gained a better perspective of this life under the sun. We have seen that all is vanity. That is, everything in this life is fleeting and temporary and insubstantial. We have seen that all things are full of weariness in this life. Things in this fallen world never turn out how we hoped. We have seen that riches and pleasures and learning are all bankrupt to satisfy us because we were made for God for eternity. We have, been, we have seen that life is full of vexation and frustration because of the injustice and wickedness and lack of wisdom that exists in this world. We have seen that aging and death are certain in this life under the sun. And we have seen that this life is not the only life there is. Eternity awaits. But we've also seen that God has given us some good things to enjoy in this fleeting journey. 
God has shown us that to enjoy the good things in this life that He has provided by eating and drinking and celebrating with a happy heart pleases Him. Indeed, this is what He made us to do. Because He's, not, he's given us not just these good things to enjoy, but He's given us the ability to enjoy what He has given And thus we have been urged by the preacher to live with full and freeing joy in our Creator. We've been urged to live with full and freeing joy all the days of these vain lives under the sun. And so what is the sum? What's the conclusion to this painfully realistic but hopeful message of the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, let's consider this epilogue under two headings. We're going to see first the truth of our one shepherd in verses 9 through 12. And secondly, we're going to see the end of our one life in verses 13 and 14. The truth of our one shepherd and the end of our one life. And so first, let's consider the truth of our one shepherd. Now, It's possible to see this epilogue as written by someone other than the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the main author. Many commentators have surmised that something like an editor may have added these last verses because he felt like that it needed some type of conclusion. That's possible, but there's really no substantial reason to not see this as written by the preacher himself. We all know that speaking of oneself in the third person is a common rhetorical message, rhetorical method. But either way, whether Solomon or some other editor, we believe this epilogue is inspired and it is the authoritative word of our God. And it is a fitting conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, verses 9 through 12 actually have a lot to say about how we view the book of Ecclesiastes and really how we view the Scripture as a whole, really how we view all of God's Word. In telling us here how he composed this book, the preacher is giving us something of a theology of Scripture itself. Notice in verse 9, he starts with the attention that he gave to arranging and teaching this wisdom. In other words, he says he didn't just throw this together haphazardly. He didn't just sort of dump his thoughts on the page. He took great care to make sure that what he wrote was arranged in the most helpful way possible. He says he arranged, he studied, he he considered and arranged these things. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 9, with great care. Not haphazardly, but with great thought. Now, I think this is a model for us here to all preachers and teachers of God's Word. Teachers are to give care not just to the content of what they say, but to the arrangement of that content. They are to arrange the content in the most helpful way so that people can understand and grasp its message. Listen, I've heard some really bad sermons in my lifetime. I've preached some really bad sermons in my lifetime. If, you, if you're interested, I could point you to the audio of some really bad sermons that I've preached. But the worst sermons are the ones that just sort of meander without structure, without goal. Just the preacher sort of telling unrelated random stories until he looks down at his watch and says, well, I guess we're about out of time. 
Almost as bad as that is the preacher who just speaks loudly and passionately, but when he gets to the end, he said nothing of, substanti- of, of substantial at all. Right? We, we are to speak the truth, and we are to speak the truth in a way that is organized, in a way that's thoughtful, in a way that's helpful to people listening. Notice verse 10. He arranged these things carefully with great care. And then notice, the preacher sought. This this implies some some work. He sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. I love that the author of Ecclesiastes describes this book as words of delight. It didn't always feel delightful when we were studying some of these passages in Ecclesiastes, did it? But he's describing his words as words of delight, words of joy. So many people see this book as nothing but gloomy and dark and depressing. But friends, if that's your impression of the book of Ecclesiastes, after studying through it, then you haven't yet grasped its point. Ecclesiastes is meant to delight our hearts. According to Psalm 19, verse 8, one of the goals of God's Word is to rejoice our hearts. That is to revive our hearts. The psalmist said that God's Word is like honey to His lips and like the finest and most precious gold in all the world. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's truth designed to bring joy and delight to our lives. All of Scripture aims at this. All of Scripture has as its aim to to delight your soul, to give you eternal joy in the One who created you. This is what Ecclesiastes is aiming at. You see, the person who says that the Bible is boring, that the Bible's out of date, is really saying something about their own hearts. If you study the Bible, if you read the Bible and find it to be dry and stale and not worth your time, then I submit to you that you don't yet understand the Bible You don't yet understand God's Word and your need to be awakened to the glory of God and the beauty of salvation that He offers in Jesus. The Bible is the revelation of our delightful God. And thus it is words of delight. Words that should thrill our souls more than anything in this life. The words of Scripture should thrill us more than the last second field goal as the time expires. It should delight our souls more than that last second bucket just as the buzzer sounds. This should delight us more than that bonus at Christmas time from our jobs. This should delight us more than finding that coveted item on sale on Black Friday. The Bible is words of delight. Words that should thrill us. But it's not just words of delight. Notice what else he describes this as. The Bible is words of truth of our God. He sought to find not just words of delight, but uprightly he wrote words of truth. The Bible is the truth of God. In a culture that doesn't believe in absolute truth, the Bible comes to us and says it is the truth of the God who created everything. The Bible is absolute and unchanging truth from our God. And notice what verse 11 says, that this delightful truth of God is designed to do in our lives. What was the the purpose of this delightful truth? Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd's. 
goads were basically long sticks with uh, sharp, pointy objects on the end that would be used to guide animals in the way that they wanted them to go. If the oxen was veering off the path, they would goad it back onto the right path or sheep that were straying. As long as the animal stayed on the right path, he didn't get the goad. But if they veered, they would feel the pain of that sharp object. God is gracious to us to make us feel the goad for our good. God's Word is often painful like a sharp stick poking us in the back because we are selfish, because we are prideful, because we've veered off the right path. That's what God's Word does to us. We are prone to wonder. And so God's wisdom goads us to the right path. Because from the beginning of this study of the book of Ecclesiastes, we have said that we need to let this book hurt us before it can heal us. We've come to terms with the reality of the futility of this life. And we have to come to terms with that before we could ever be healed by it, before we could ever enjoy the days as they come to us by God. Ecclesiastes stings because it forces us to stare at our mortality and our limitations. How has Ecclesiastes hurt you? How has Ecclesiastes goaded you? Are there any idols that this book has been prying from your fingers? When we read and when we study Scripture, we should expect it to sometimes offend us and sting us. Listen, if you listen to Bible-saturated sermons all the time, if you read and study the Bible and you're never offended, if it never stings, if it never cuts, then you're probably not honestly reading the Scripture. Because we need correction. We need God's Word to rebuke us and correct us. And that's the design of God's Word, to goad us onto the right path when we stray. But verse 11 also says the Scripture is like nails firmly fixed. Now I think nails firmly fixed implies this image of stability. Kind of like a tent peg. The wise truth of God provides this solid anchoring. This solid foundation for all of life. And so he says God's Word both stings like goads and stabilizes like nails firmly fixed. God's Word stings and stabilizes. And I trust that Ecclesiastes has done that for you as it has for me. Well, notice the most significant thing the preacher says about this wisdom, this truth in verse 11. He says, from whom it is given. He says, it is given by one shepherd. Now, I think the English Standard Version is exactly right here in capitalizing the word shepherd. This has to be referring to God, who is the ultimate shepherd of His people. And if that's true, if this is referring to God, then think of what an amazing statement this is on the inspiration of this book. He says, all of this is from God. But hold on a second. He just said that He arranged it with great care. Which is it? Did He arrange it or did God give it? Was it given from God or was it arranged by the preacher? And the answer is yes. This is what we believe about how God inspired all of Scripture. The human authors wrote using their language, their perspective, their situation, but they did so under the inspiration 
of the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Peter 1, verse 21 says it as clearly, as clearly as possible. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the preacher wrote his experiences and the things he learned observing life under the sun. But it was God who was giving these delightful truths to his people. Yes, the preacher was arranging and studying and compiling, but at the same time, God was giving and inspiring and blessing. And of course, we should think of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear the word shepherd. Jesus, remember, said he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so I think we're to read all of Ecclesiastes and all of Scripture as the word about Jesus, from Jesus. It's the word about Him, from our Lord and Savior. All of Scripture testifies to King Jesus. He is the truth that Scripture proclaims. And so because this wisdom and this truth is so valuable to our lives, Notice the warning the preacher gives in verse 12. Because this is so valuable to us, because Scripture is so essential to our growth and our holiness as believers, notice what he says. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now this shouldn't be taken as an instruction to never read any books but the Bible. Some have taken this that way. I don't think that's what he's saying, but rather I think this is a warning against wearying ourselves out, trying to learn everything, trying to find meaning and purpose under the sun, while we neglect the one book that is given by our one shepherd. Amen. The warning is to not go searching after all of the wisdom of the world, wearying ourselves and studying and learning and trying to get to the bottom of things while we neglect the inspired, authoritative truth that is from our one shepherd. Over a million books are published every year, not to mention the blog posts and social media. Studying everything written is a recipe for being weary and useless. But rather, we should be people of the one book, the Scripture. You should take this as an encouragement to be mastered by the one word of God. Books like their altars will die and be forgotten. And so turn to the eternal truth of God's word if you want something lasting, if you want something substantial to build your life on. Be a person of the book of your shepherds. The Word of God is God's wisdom given from God. The Word of God is the truth of God given from God. The Word of God is the delight of God given from God. I think this is a call to recognize and embrace Scripture as the one truth of our gracious shepherd. And so ask yourself, are you devoting time and energy to studying and being mastered by the wisdom of God's Word? Do you submit yourself daily to the teaching of the Bible? If not, I hope you'll let this passage goad you into action today. Let this passage prod you to say what in your life needs to change so that you're constantly exposing yourself to the truth of the Word of God. Don't be a mere hearer of this. Be a doer of the Word of God. 
And so this first section of the epilogue in verses 9 through 12 shows us the one truth of our one shepherd. But let's look now at the second section of this epilogue in verses 13 and 14 where we see the end of our one life. The end of our one life. And so notice how the preacher summarizes this wisdom book in these final two verses. He says, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now I see a double meaning to this word end in verse 13. When I say end of our one life, I think end should be understood as both purpose and as literal end. Like what happens when you die. The end being the purpose of our lives, but also the end being the the literal end of our lives. And so think first about the grand end of your life, as in your purpose, your goal. Why do you exist? What are you here for? The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And by that question, it means, what is man's purpose? What is man's chief end? means, why is he here? And the answer the catechism gives is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's essentially what the preacher is saying here about our chief end, about the purpose for which we exist. Man's chief end has to do with God, our Creator. Our purpose is not to live for ourselves. Our purpose is not to accumulate as many goods as we can. Our purpose is not to experience as many worldly pleasures as we can. Our purpose is to fear God and to keep His commandments. Notice the preacher says, this is the whole duty of man. This is is your whole reason for existence. This is your purpose. Now, the word duty is not actually in the Hebrew text here. Literally, the preacher says, This is the whole of man. This is what mankind was created for. This is man's essence, he is saying. The whole reason we exist. God created us for Himself that we might fear Him, that we might obey Him. Now, the preacher has emphatically declared in this book that all is empty. All is meaningless. But he makes sure here and ends by saying, not all is vanity. Not every single thing is a chasing after the wind. Fearing God and obeying Him, that's what we were made for. That's not a chasing after the wind. The only lasting good of our vain lives is to be be Godward in our affections and in our orientation. God is to be the sun of the solar system of our lives. Now, what does it mean to fear God? To fear God means to trust God. This is not fearing in the sense of being afraid of. Yes, if you're outside of Jesus, you should fear God. You should fear His wrath. You should fear His anger. He is terrifyingly holy. You should tremble at His awesome majesty. But fearing here, has more to do with reverence and awe of God's greatness. Fearing here is parallel with faith. And fearing God is necessary 
before we can obey God. We don't obey God and then fear Him. No, we fear God and thus in fearing Him and trusting Him, we are empowered to obey Him. Listen, if you don't fear God, you'll have no reason to do what God says. If God isn't revered and trusted in your heart, then why would you care about doing what this God says? And so fearing God goes before obeying God. And so ask yourself, is there a fear of this holy God in you? Are you in awe of God? Or have you, have you started to view God as just sort of not that very significant to your everyday life? Do you fear God in your thoughts? Do you fear God in your actions? Is obedience to God and His Word a priority in your life? Like, are you eager to do what God says? Do you fear God at work by being an honest employee with integrity? Do you fear God in your marriage by selflessly serving your spouse? Do you fear God at school when you're with your friends? Do you fear God when you're playing sports? Do you fear God when you're watching your shows or enjoying the entertainment that you enjoy? The Creator deserves and demands complete allegiance and trust and reverence. This is the end of your existence. This is the end, the purpose, the goal of why you exist. This is your whole being. This is your chief end, your highest calling. And the motivation the preacher gives for fearing and obeying God is, is twofold here. Notice it. We are to fear and obey God because this is our whole duty, that's first, but also because God will bring every deed into judgment. So this is the second way I see the word end. The word end means purpose or goal, but also literal end, the end of our lives under the sun. The preacher has said death is certain. And so what happens when we die? Well, the preacher says God will bring every deed into judgment. God will bring every deed into judgment. Judgment is where our lives are headed. And I don't want to get too deep on you this morning, but hear me out on this. By every deed, the author means every deed. Every single thing we have done or will do is included in every deed. And the reason I know that he means every deed by saying every deed is because he says even the secret things. And he says both good and evil will be judged by God. Every deed means every deed. Hebrews 13, 4.13 says, Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Listen, you and I must give account for our lives. Everything, every secretary, good and evil, laid bare before the One who sees all. The end of this one life under the sun, he says, will conclude in judgment. All of our sin, known and unknown to others, will be laid out in full. Every secret thought, every secret lust, every jealousy, every bitterness, everything will be judged. Even the sins we have been successful in hiding, to other, hiding from others will be brought to the light. And it's not just the evil deeds 
It's not just the wicked things that we have done that we will be judged for. Notice we will be judged by our good deeds. And that inner lawyer inside of all of us begins to rise up and start to use our good deeds to sort of justify or overshadow our evil deeds until we hear God say that even our righteousness is as filthy rags before Him. Even our best deeds are tainted with sin and selfishness. Listen, we are not good people who every now and then do some bad stuff. No, we are wicked to the core and even the few good things that we manage to do are marred by sin. J.I. Packer once said it like this. He said, our best works are shot through with sin and contain something for which we need to be forgiven. Our best works are shot through with sin and contain things for which we need to be forgiven. Even our best deeds we need to repent of. I, I, didn't, I didn't begin to understand just how wicked I am until I realized that I need God to rescue me from my good deeds just as much or maybe even more than from my evil deeds. Because my righteous deeds begin to fool me into thinking that I could somehow justify myself or trust in my own ability to fear God and keep His commands. And this is where the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes prepares us to hear the good news of the Gospel of Jesus. You see, Ecclesiastes prepares us to hear of the awesome birth and life and death and resurrection of our Savior. Our chief end is to fear God and obey His commands. But friends, the bad news is we have failed at that in 10 million ways. And we will all face judgment from the holy God who created us. So what are we to do with this truth of God? This is the wise goading of the Word of God. We need to feel its prick in our hearts and the dire predicament that we all face. And it's only when we own up to just how much debt our sin has amassed that we can begin to understand the glory of our Savior who came and died and rose on our behalf. Jesus was born. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and He was resurrected in order for you and I to be ready for Ecclesiastes 12.14. Jesus came so that we could be ready for the end of our lives. This is what Ecclesiastes is pointing us toward. The preacher is urging us to view our lives from the perspective of the end of our lives when we will face judgment from holy God. Are you ready for God's judgment on your every secret thought, on your every secret deed, on your everything good and bad? Well, how do we get ready? I'm glad you asked. Let me conclude this Ecclesiastes series with an illustration. Suppose you hear that to be a member of Augusta National Golf Club, which is one of the most famous golf courses in the world, suppose that you hear to be a member of this golf club, you have to have a green jacket. You think to yourself, I, I've got a green jacket in my closet. I think I'll go play some golf. You're confident that your jacket is green. You're confident that you're going to go enjoy some golf and enjoy some azaleas. But what you don't realize 
is that Augusta National Golf Course doesn't just require any old green jackets. You have to have the green jackets. And unless you have the green jacket, they won't let you in. So how do you get one of these green jackets so that you can become a member and play some golf? Well, I hear that membership at Augusta National is by invitation only, and there is a long waiting list. So not just anybody can be a member and enjoy the benefits of membership. You've got to be either among the best golfers in the whole world, or you've got to be somebody really, really important. Well, suppose you hear that to be accepted by Almighty Holy God on the Day of Judgment, that you've got to have a robe. Holy God only accepts people wearing a robe. And so you think to yourself, I've got a robe. I've got the robe of my privileges and advantages and accomplishments and achievements of my life, right? I've got the robe sewn from my good deeds and all the times I've feared and obeyed God. But friends, it's not just any old robe that God will accept. God only accepts perfect, spotless, clean robes. And so the question you should ask yourself is, how can I get one of these robes? What can I do to get one of these robes that God accepts? Can I buy it? Do I have enough money to purchase it? No. God already owns the entire universe. There's not enough money in all the world to buy this robe. Well, can I earn it? Can I, can I get enough stars on my account that, that I get it as a, as a gift for what I've done? Can I work for this robe? Can I obey all of God's commands for the rest of my life and earn this robe? No. Because if all you did were good deeds for the rest of your life, you would still have the weight and the debt of all your sin. The only way to be clothed in the righteous robe that God accepts on the day of judgment is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. You see, when you trust in Jesus, something amazing happens. He clothes you with His own spotless, pure robe. And it gets even better. Not only does He clothe you with His pure and spotless robe, but He Himself takes on His own shoulders your filthy, dirty, torn robe of your sin and your unrighteousness. He credits His perfect record to your account and He takes the debt of your sin on Himself so that when you stand before the judgment seat of God and all your deeds are laid bare and all the secret things are there, if you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, what you should say is not look at what I've done, look at my good deeds, but look at Christ. Look at what He accomplished in my place. Friends, where will your confidence be when this happens For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Will your confidence be in your ragged righteousness or will it be in the sufficient righteousness of King Jesus? The One greater than Solomon, the Lord Jesus has come so that we don't have to bear the punishment we deserve on this day of judgment. He came to clothe us in finer garments than Solomon could have ever dreamed of. He came to give us His perfect record of always fearing God and always obeying God's commands. A favorite quote of all, John Newton at the end of his life said, my memory is failing me, but these two things I remember. I am a great sinner 
and Christ is a great Savior. Do you know these two things? I am a great sinner. I deserve the righteous judgment of God for all the ways I've not feared Him, for all the ways I've not obeyed Him, for all the secret things. I deserve His condemnation. I am a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior who died in my place to take upon Himself my judgment, my condemnation, so I could know the blessing and joy of His perfect, spotless righteousness on my shoulders. As you face the end to which your life is moving, I urge you, embrace Jesus as your greatest treasure. Embrace Him as the most valuable treasure in all of the universe. After I pray for us, we're going to sing this song, Oh Great God. And here's how the second verse goes. I hope you're able to say this today. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear Your voice, did not know Your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then Your Spirit gave me life, opened up Your Word to me through the Gospel of Your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray You do this for Your people in this room today. Oh God, open our blinded eyes. Help us to see Your Gospel, the good news of Your Son, and give us endless hope and peace. Give us taste for heaven's joys, O God. Revive our soul. Delight our hearts by Your truth on this day, by the power of Your Spirit. O God, we trust You. Help us to fear You. Help us to obey You. And we pray You'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing, O great God.